0: This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose for our justification, and that we receive that justification by faith alone. That's it. Nothing else. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29 will be our text this morning. As you're turning there, just wanted to give you an update on Emma. It's been a few weeks. Uh, Emma's my daughter that has almost seven years ago was uh, stricken with a very rare neurological, uh, you don't even how to describe it, attack where her body basically attacked her brain. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the story, she was deemed to be terminal. They didn't think she would live past a year. Well, here we are seven years later and still seeing small signs of improvement. This past week, she battled pneumonia. Uh, She was on an antibiotic administered through IV, but is doing better. And so we thank God for that and ask for your continued prayers for healing, not just for God to sustain us. Pray for that too. But we believe that God is healing her and pray for you, ask you to join us in that prayer. All right, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. many ways, the paragraph that I'm about to read serves as as a summation for Paul's argument thus far. He's bringing this, uh, this part of justification by faith to a conclusion. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to start talking about our adoption, as well as that we are heirs of the kingdom, of God's promises by faith. But before we get there, Paul wants to remind us once again that we are justified, made right with God by faith. Hear the word of the Lord, starting at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. You know, my wife and I have been married over 30 years And within those 30 years, I've given her a lot of reasons to be embarrassed by my behavior. I know, I know it's a shock, but it happens and still does. I think one of the most embarrassing moments in our marriage occurred, we hadn't been married more than a month. I'd accepted the pastorate of First Baptist Church in Blum, Texas. And we had moved to Texas within three weeks of being married. And getting settled into the church, and on this particular Sunday, the choir director, Harriet Roberts, had invited us over to her house for Sunday lunch. Wonderful lunch, Texas lunch. I remember it very well. We had brisket and baked. It was wonderful. And then she topped everything off by a homemade peach cobbler. Woo, thank you, Jesus remember setting that cobbler on the table and she said, now we're just going to pass it around so everybody can help themselves. And she said, I know some people like ice cream on their cobbler, some don't. So we'll just pass around the ice cream with a spoon. If you want some ice cream, just dip it out on top. Oh, that was, that was a mistake. See, because I have a, a habit. I've sought counseling for it. I've even gone to a support group, but I still struggle with it. I'm confessing my sin to you this morning. I like to eat ice cream out of the carton. It's better that way. It's directly out of the freezer. It's not tainted by any warmth of a bowl. And plus, it saves work. We don't have to wash a bowl. It's a win-win situation. So as we're talking around the dinner table, and that ice cream comes around before I can catch myself, I scoop out some ice cream onto the cobbler. I get another scoop, and I'm eating, and I'm talking. Until my wife says, Harriet, could you get another spoon, and please excuse my husband's behavior. In the moment, without thinking, my habit came out. Habits have a way of doing that, don't they? They're so ingrained into our thinking, we begin to do them without even thinking. Now, the reason I share that embarrassing moment with you is this. By now, you're probably thinking, Paul, we get it, (laughs) okay? It's salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, and no other way. Let's move on, but Paul's not going to let us move on. He knows that there's always the temptation that we will try to change the equation of grace from being faith plus grace equals salvation. We will try to change it just like the teachers were in Galatia by saying it is faith plus grace times good works that brings you salvation And Paul wants us to get into our thinking so that we think of grace and faith without even any cognizant work. It comes out of our lives as naturally as breathing does. So that in that moment when we are pressed, when we are tempted. First response is, I am saved by faith through grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And so Paul brings this section of the letter to a conclusion with again reminding us that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But he starts off a little different here. Notice in verse 23 he says, Now before faith came, that should cause us to say, Now wait, whoa, 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 Paul, wait. I hope you interact with the Word of God like that. Wait a minute, Paul. How can faith come? I mean, Paul has already argued a few verses before that, and has been arguing through the letter, that Abraham, who lived 430 years before the law, was saved by faith. So how in the world can he say when faith came? We thought faith had already come. In fact, he does it again. Verse 23, until the coming faith would be revealed. And then in verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come. What in the world is Paul getting at here? This doesn't seem to make sense. Until you realize that Paul is using faith, that one word, that part of the gospel, to describe all of the gospel. We do something. We do do, still do that today now pardon me because I recognize that the example that I'm about to give to you is going to seem an, anachronistic it's going to seem old and outdated but bear with me if you will suppose a parent had a child that was turning 16 and they decided that they were going to surprise their baby girl their their baby boy who's turning 16 with a car god forbid and so the child comes in They've got the car hidden away, and they come and they say, we've got a surprise for you, Junior. We've got you a set of wheels out in the driveway. I know, I know. Golly dang it, that's an old way of saying it. What do they mean? You've got a set of wheels out there. Does that mean the child's going to walk out in the driveway and there are going to be four tires sitting there? No. It's a car. Wheels, a part of the car, represents the whole of the car. That's what Paul's saying here. Faith represents the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that by faith you can be a part of Christ. Because notice, once again, just to show you I'm not making this up, look at verse 24 again. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Look at the connection, verse 23, before faith came the coming faith, and then in verse 24, until Christ came, and then in verse 25, but now that faith has come. So faith to Paul becomes a one-word summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to get away from it, that it is by faith that we are saved. And because of that faith, there are four truths that that I want us to cling to this morning out of this paragraph that we can hold on to as sure as we are breathing right now that because faith has come, we can be free. Freedom. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We need freedom. Notice in verse 23, he starts out by saying, before faith came... Okay, so before Jesus came and died and rose again, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, we were imprisoned by the law. The prison was made of bars of rules and regulations. You see, the law imprisoned by revealing sin, but not delivering from sin. The law made clear the problem but could not solve it. It could cause us to to look forward to the coming sacrifice of Jesus who would be the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, slain for our sins, but the law could not interact or, or bring about a change in our hearts where we became delivered from our sin. Paul made the very same point in a different way in the book of Romans. He says, sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now think about the inverse of that. Think of it like this. And, and once again, I'm doing this just so we'll see that the law imprisons. For sin will have dominion over you, since you are under law and not under grace. That's the inverse that Paul's correcting with this. He's saying if you are seeking justification with God by following rules and regulations as regarded in the Torah, it is not going to bring about what you desire in being made right with God. Now Paul acknowledges in a very unique way that this language may be far removed from the Galatians. Because after all, I look out and I don't know many of us that felt compelled to follow Torah. So Paul makes this point. Look at the pronouns that are used. Verse 23, we were held captive. The law was our guardian. That's verse 24. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all. See the change in pronouns? We, our, we, and then all of a sudden, it's you. Paul is making this point that these teachers who are telling them it is grace plus faith plus following the Torah that identifies you as the people of God were not even even justified by the law themselves. He said, we as Jews could not find justification this way, but you are sons of God. How? By faith. Therefore, don't escape the prison of sin only to become incarcerated under the captivity of the law which could never set you free. The law simply points out where we have failed and how we need a Savior. The law tantalizes us, promises us, if you do this, then you will be righteous. If you do this, then you'll be righteous, if you'll permit me. Once again, to show my age, I'm quoting the lyrics of a song from back in the day. The words that said, you can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushions, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. That tantalization. Just do this. If I can do this a little bit more, then I'll earn God's favor. The good news of the gospel is that God's favor has been given upon Jesus Christ. And by faith in Him, we share in that. And the good news of the gospel is the things that we really long for. The things that prompt us to sin. Because sin... Always prays upon our desires and promises us, you do this, you will get what you want. What do we want the same things? To be loved, to belong, to know joy, and to know peace. And sin always tempts. And the law always promises you can get those things through your efforts. But they never do. That's why when Paul starts talking about life in the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he says the fruit of the Spirit. And remember, the Spirit is God Himself dwelling within us. How do we know God is dwelling within us? You'll have the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. The law cannot give these things. Only the Spirit of God gives us freedom to know that we are loved, we have joy, we have peace with God and one another through Jesus Christ. Through faith, we are made free and we are justified. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law served a purpose. Its purpose is shown in the word guardian. Now, that's the Greek word pedagogue. Some translations translate it as teacher. I don't think that's a a great translation, and this is why. A pedagogue was a slave entrusted by the Roman family to oversee the child. And the job of the pedagogue was to be sure that that child got up, had breakfast, made their way to the instructor, got home from the instructor, and did their homework. That was the pedagogue's job. To be sure they got to school, got home from school, and did their homework. Doesn't a pedagogue sound like we need that today? But here was the problem. The pedagogue was given free reign to do whatever was necessary to get the kid to do their homework. That was not a good thing. Pedagogues could be known to be harsh. Harsh. Unforgiving. And Paul says that's what the law was. Until Christ came. You see, the law was temporary in that role until the Christ came, Christ coming and, and walking the earth in full righteousness. And look at the next phrase: in order that it was for this purpose, Christ came. The law was the pedagogue guiding us to Christ. In order that, here's the purpose that we might be justified by let's do it one more time okay that we might be justified by because we know the law can't save it's got to be through faith in Christ because the law can't offer salvation one of the to me anyway one of the gospel narratives That always grabs my heart is the story recorded in John 9 of the woman caught in adultery. She was drug out, literally drug out of the relationship by these Pharisees who did not care about her. They just simply wanted to use her to make a point to Jesus. So they drag her in front of Jesus, throw her down and say, all right, Jesus... We've caught her in the act. Torah says we stone her to death. What do you say? And in my mind I see them holding their rocks. Getting their stance ready to go. Smiling because they know they've got Jesus. But just when you think you've got Jesus in a corner. You realize he's really got you. Because he nails down, kneels down. And he starts riding in the dirt. What he wrote, we don't know. But he said these words You without sin cast the first stone. Can you see the man stopping? The scripture says that slowly they started releasing the rocks in their hands, and one by one, starting with the field, walked away until it was just Jesus with the woman that was caught in the act. And in my mind, I see Jesus kneeling down and he puts his hand under her chin. And he says, dear, where are the people that condemn you? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I ask you this morning, what did the law offer that woman other than death? What did the law offer those men? It offered them a way to feed their pride, which is an abomination before God, to feel morally superior and glorying in the sins of others and glorying in their own self-righteousness, which Jesus exploded with those words, you without sin. The law does not give life. The law does not justify It is only by faith in the grace of God that we are justified and we find one of the things for which we are hungering. One of the results of being justified is that we belong. Now that faith has come, you can belong to the people of God. This is found in verses 25 through 28. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The law no longer has to to point us, discipline us, because the Spirit of God has come. Now look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all. And I love that you. Later on, we're going to see that whereas the Gentile Galatians did not struggle with the Torah, they still struggled with sin. And he says, you now are sons of God. That's language from Abraham. That's language from David in Psalm 2. Through Faith, your sons, it's a language of adoption. Adoption is one of the overlooked metaphors describing salvation that Paul's going to dive into in chapter 4 verse 5. Although right now I just want to make this point. There are some who read sons and today in our politicized agenda we will say, You see, the Bible is against women. It's repressive. Please hear me. The phrase there, sons of God, does mean sons and daughters of God. But the word Paul uses is crucial for understanding the family of God. At the time Paul wrote this, women, daughters, were not considered heirs. If a rich man had daughters... His estate would be passed along to the nearest male relative. Daughters could not inherit. Sons, however, could inherit. Sons would receive the estate the father had promised. So understand, when Paul says, you are all, that word all encompasses man, woman, slave, freeman. It encompasses all. You are all sons. In other words, every one of you by faith has a right to the promised estate of God, which is eternal life. Without distinction. Paul hammers home this point in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now understand that in verse 28. He's not saying those distinctions are erased. When a person became saved they may still be a slave. As emphasized in the book Philemon That Paul wrote to Philemon who owned slaves particularly regarding a slave by the name of Onesimus. The distinctions of male and female were not erased. But what Paul is saying here is that those distinctions are transcended by the gospel. There's no second-class Christian. There should be no dividing lines in the church between black and white, rich and poor, where you're from or where you're not from. He says you all come together as the people of God, one. And I find it interesting that the language Paul uses here, these these three parts of slave, of male, female, and then also what does he say of Greek and Jew, were in particular response to a prayer that Jewish men would often utter. In their piety, this false piety, a Jewish male would often pray, Lord in heaven, I thank you that you have made me a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you, Lord in heaven, that you have made me a free person rather than a slave. And Lord in heaven, I thank you that you have made me a man rather than a woman. And Paul takes that prayer and he tears it in two now. And he says, in the gospel, there's neither male nor female nor Greek nor Jew. There is neither male, rich, or poor. There is one family of God to which we belong. And as a symbol of that belonging is baptism. Verse 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That language is powerful. As I said earlier, baptism is not what saves. These three boys who stepped into the water today have professed faith before they were saved. Baptism was that symbol. I often use this analogy to explain it. Stepping into this water doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. It's by faith we are saved. But that does not denigrate the importance of baptism in any way. To Paul, the idea of an unbaptized Christian was an oxymoron. Baptism was an act a believer did in obedience to the Lord to demonstrate their union with Christ. The language of union is crucial. Look at the prepositions found throughout this passage. Starting in verse 24, until Christ came. Looking down to verse 27, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he says you are Christ. Everything speaks of being in Jesus. That by faith we are placed in him so that the blessings given to God, given to Christ from the Father are given to us also. Why? Because we are in Christ. Don't overlook that. Especially that language that Paul uses of putting on Christ. That's the language of putting on a jacket or a shirt or in that day and age putting on a a robe. It's a way of saying I am clothed in him. It's that language of righteousness. That we are by faith in Christ and he dwells within us. Which leads us to the hope we have. Now that faith has come you can have hope. Verse 29, he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To say you're Abraham's offspring is to say you're part of God's people. Not because of your genetics, not because of your lineage, but by faith. Heirs to receive what is promised. Now, Paul's going to explore this topic more in chapter 4 about being sons and heirs. But remember, God promised to Abraham the land. We receive something far greater. Eternal life, yes, but a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And how do we receive that? By faith. Trusting Him. September 1st, 1939 was a day that changed history. Because it was on that day that the German army invaded Poland and World War II began. Just a little over a year, the Nazis had established the Warsaw Ghetto. That was a section of Warsaw where all the Jews that lived in Warsaw were gathered together. It was a 1.3 square mile area, 1.3 square miles, not big at all. But on that 1.3 square miles, there were 460,000 Jews living. 460,000 people living on one square mile. Scholars estimate that it was an average of nine people per room. Nine people per room. Food was rationed. Disease was rampant. But there was even something worse than that. The Warsaw Ghetto was the spot of deportation to the extermination camps. By the summer of 1942, there were 240,000 Jews sent out of the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka extermination camp. To stay in the ghetto was to risk death, but to be deported guaranteed death. Now, in the midst of this darkness, there were glimmers of light. One such spark was a lady by the name of Irina Sendler. Irina was part of the Polish underground. When word spread that a typhoid fever outbreak was ravaging the ghetto, She developed a plan. She would go into the Warsaw Ghetto disguised as a sanitation worker. And she would then smuggle children out of the Warsaw Ghetto. In bags, in boxes, any way she could get them into the truck and get them out of the Ghetto to safety. She saved more than 2,500 children before she was arrested and tortured. But there was always a choice. When she knocked at the door of a family, the parents had to make a decision. Will I trust her to get my child to safety? Because I know if they're caught, it will mean death. Will I trust Will I have faith that she can deliver them? That's the same question Paul is reminding us of. The Savior has come. He can deliver us from our sins. But will we have faith? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Bow with me if you will. Father, I want to thank you that you have provided the means of salvation when we could not save ourselves. Father, there was nothing that we could do. But in your grace, Father, you sent Jesus at just the perfect time. That he would die on the cross for our sins. That he would be raised from the dead for our justification. And Father, I thank you that this is ours, not by works, but by faith. So, Father, I ask you this morning for every believer to be renewed in their faith. If they are facing doubts, oh Lord, bring them back to salvation by faith because of your grace. And, Lord, if there's anyone that has heard this message and has not believed, I pray that you would stir their hearts that they would believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved from their sin. Grant this, Father, we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.